Let's take a moment to thank our sponsor, Avast, for supporting the Bureau. Avast's new all-in-one solution, Avast One, helps you take control of your safety and privacy online through a range of features. Learn more about Avast One at avast.com. Hey, join me in a shout out to Credit Karma for supporting my podcast. Credit Karma, apply with more confidence today. Ready to apply? Head to creditkarma.com slash loan offers to see personalized offers. Now back to the podcast. I'm Frank Figluzzi, former FBI Assistant Director for Counterintelligence. Join me on a journey to explore our nation's security, the forces that threaten it, and the people who preserve it. Let's talk with insiders in and around the intelligence community, law enforcement, and the military, including, of course, the FBI. They'll take us deep into their stories, their mission, and their lives as we go behind and beyond the Bureau. husband, Stuart Rhodes, in a hotel suite. Well, I think Stuart panics. Your husband is leader of a group that's heavily armed. I know at one point there was 40,000 dues-paying members. Weapons, gear, equipment. He always tries to use force when he wants something to happen. Battered spouse syndrome. That kind of thing would make him just infuriated. Yale Law School graduate. He is a lawyer. I mean, a disbarred one, but he is a lawyer. Extremely serious charges of seditious conspiracy. Took me a little longer to understand that he was a sociopath. Tasha Adams was married to Oath Keepers founder Stuart Rhodes for 24 years. They had six children together. Now, with Rhodes imprisoned on seditious conspiracy charges for his role in the January 6th insurrection, Tasha reveals the real Rhodes, the man who allegedly abused her and their kids, while Tasha supported him through college and law school. She shares what it was like to be married and now trying to divorce the man who commands his own private army. Tasha Adams, the Oath Keeper's wife, is our guest. Tasha, thanks for joining us. I uh, I couldn't think of a better guest to have on this day because as we record this, we have some breaking news in a case against another Oath Keeper. But for now, thank you for spending time with us today. Well, thanks for having me on. Sure. I uh, I don't know if you've seen the news yet this morning, but we have a report. Yeah. Okay. You have. I want to get your, your take on it. This is great. Um, so we have a guy named Wilson from North Carolina. He's considered a, at least a county leader of Oath Keepers in North Carolina. And we have him apparently now cooperating with a federal investigation. He is, he, Wilson, is now the third defendant charged with seditious conspiracy who is pleading guilty and appears to be cooperating. I've just read the lengthy uh, filing uh, with regard to what he's saying. And he's saying that on January 6th, he was with your uh, husband, uh, Stuart Rhodes, in a hotel suite. It was the afternoon, closer around to around 6 p.m. The building was still being cleared, the campus uh, of the Capitol being cleared. And he is in the room when Stuart is talking to, quote, an intermediary of President Trump's, and Stewart is imploring the intermediary to that he wants to speak to Trump, that Trump should be using militia groups to help overturn the election process at the Capitol. What's your take on that? Well, I think Stuart panicked. 
I think it didn't go the way he wanted it to go because well, this is at what this was at 5 p.m. Right? Yeah. It didn't go the way he wanted it to go, and he panicked. And I kind of thought from the beginning, at least since January, that he had some type of connection to Trump. I didn't think he was speaking directly with Trump. I thought for security reasons, they were probably keeping it a few people away. Mm-hmm. Multiple facts here sound exactly like Stewart, and I I don't doubt what this person said. One is. It's a connection to Trump. I think likely most people probably think Roger Stone. I think that's probably accurate. I don't see anybody else. Yeah. That's the first person I I thought of as well. Yeah. Also, he was told, no, you can't speak with them or Trump doesn't want to speak to you. I'm not sure which. And I think that this is because Stuart broke protocol. You know, I, I don't think Trump is supposed to be speaking with Stuart directly for deniability's sake, but this is the type of thing that Stuart would do is in subtle ways and in not so subtle ways, he always tries to use force when he wants something to happen. And this for him was intentionally breaking protocol, intentionally creating a link, which we can now look at. Yes. That that people witnessed, other people were in that room, intentionally going back on whatever it was they had agreed to, trying to connect with Trump Mm. directly. And trying by doing that to force Trump to do what he wanted because he knows he's in trouble at this point. He's going to, he's going to prison and he, he knew it then. Yeah. You use the word force and there's something that, that uh, people who study cults look at call mm-hmm. forcing the ending. And you meant you referenced that things hadn't gone Stewart's way that day, meaning they weren't able yet to stop the uh, ratification of the electoral college vote. And he, was, he seems to have been, as you say, panicking, forcing the ending, as they say in cult studies, when things don't go the cult's way. And I, I want to tell you from an investigative standpoint, again, I spent 25 years as an FBI agent. This is a treasure trove of information mm-hmm. with this guy Wilson cooperating. Because now it's not just Wilson saying, I, I just heard Stewart's end of that conversation, but rather the FBI now can put into their uh, analytical software, can, uh, they're dumping all the phone numbers and phone activity and emails they have. And this amazing analytical software spits mm-hmm. out connections and says, look, we know who this phone number belongs to. It's mm-hmm. Roger Stones or it's whoever it is. We, we got to be careful about conjecture. But they will, that, that analytical software will, will say, by the way, these two numbers have talked mm-hmm. several times before. This is all done. This is all done through software programs. It, in the old days, it used to be a bunch of analysts sitting at a table, but you know now tens of thousands or millions of phone records can be put in there. And knowing this, that Wilson's saying, "Look, uh, Stewart called uh, this intermediary." Um, and by the way, I'm I'm reading the filing, and I think Wilson mm-hmm. knows exactly who that was. Yeah. I, I I don't I don't think it's a mystery and. It doesn't yeah. say an unknown <laughs> intermediary, it just says an intermediary. But the pattern analysis now can be done by the investigators to say, my God, Stewart called that very same number, which might have been a, a, mm-hmm. a, a throwaway phone, a burner phone. Um, but that doesn't yeah. matter. He called it five times before. So th- this is a very significant uh, development that not only do we have an Oathkeeper leader cooperating, but he's cooperating against Stuart Rhodes, and he's linking Stuart Rhodes to attempts to talk to Trump Good stuff. Yeah. And we do know also from the documentarian footage, probably get his name wrong, was Nick Questing uh, footage, um, that there were stills of Roger Stone's phone, I believe, that had Stewart's name in the contacts. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, it, and uh, <laughs> I mean, it's not a sure thing, but 
it's what I expected. Well, you mentioned, Tasha, you, you mentioned that this little scenario in the hotel suite sounds like Stuart. Give us more about Stuart's background, personality. Here's a guy who is held up by Oath Keepers members and, and other member groups. Uh, and by the way, in this scenario in the, in the hotel suite, we hear reference to other groups because allegedly Wilson says Stuart tells this Trump intermediary, the mm-hmm. president should be using us and other groups. So yeah. that's even more of an investigative lead that holy, holy cow, you know, what's the coordination yeah. like between, say, Proud Boys and Oath Keepers? Or, yeah, and or what other groups are there? It's probably Proud Boys and, and that's about it. Yeah. Three percenters. Yeah. We've always had clues that they were all kind of working together. But here's a here's yet another one. But tell us what tell us about Stuart Rhodes, the so-called principled leader uh, uh, this this man with this grand vision of uh, of protecting, preserving the his the oath he's taken. What what what's this guy really like? What's it, you you've been married to to him for how long? Well, I separated in twenty eighteen. I guess that would have been twenty was that twenty four years in at that point. Yeah. So a really long time. <laughs> and how many how many children together? Six. Six children together. Okay, give us the ground truth on Stuart Rhodes. Well, it's, it's interesting that you mentioned cult behavior, people learning to deprogram from cults. You know, that's, that's something my children identify with and something that's helped them a lot to, to carry on and to heal. But Stuart grew up um, in a family of motivational speakers, ministers. His mother was a new age minister and sometimes a multi-level marketing <laughs> guru and a motivational speaker. So it very similar behaviors. And he really took to that right away. You know, public speaking in their family was a huge, huge part of their family life. It's it's a dinner table talk, you know, oh, you know, so-and-so used notes at a speak the other day, speech the other day. You're never gonna get anywhere like that. No one will listen to you. Um, so <laughs> that was a huge part of it. And, so, and- sell- so the idea of role models in his life who for a living, sell a con mm-hmm. or sell yes. sell sell ideas to people that aren't necessarily valid. Yes, he you know he is a person that likes to read and study and memorize and absorb ideas of other people's, and he really took to that. He spent a lot of time. He had stacks and stacks and stacks of books on mind control techniques, body language. A lot of books from former FBI people who CIA people who would talk about uh, body language and how to pass lie detector tests and how to, how to read a crowd. If you've ever seen Darren Brown, the mentalist from the UK, the tricks he uses on people to, as, as sort of a circus act to control people and to hypnotic techniques, hypnotizing crowds. This is something he studied extensively and he used those tricks so much. I actually recognized some of them when I, when we were listening in for the uh, detention hearing and um, when they reconvened for me to talk about his, some of his violence at the at his um, detention hearing, and I, I heard him use those techniques, you know, on on the judge, and <laughs> immediately recognized him trying to talk about a few small mundane things to do with the court process to subconsciously get the judge and the other attorneys to to view him as a peer rather than a defendant, you know, just <laughs> little subtle things he would do. And this is this is what he does. He brings people in, and and you know he's the Messiah of of himself. And <laughs> and well, speak just... speak about that Messiah of himself is quite the phrase. Mm-hmm. So, are you implying that that this guy is not a principled, true believer necessarily, but rather believes only in himself? 
Yeah, he, he really does. He sees himself as a great man and he will morph and shift in ways that allow him to have as many followers as possible. Um, he does do a fair amount of lying to himself too. He does um, like to believe he is this great man. And so sometimes it'll take him a few days to, to settle into a new concept or shift around and adjust his narrative to fit. What it, but you can even see the, the trajectory of Oath Keepers. You could see that it started out very libertarian, even leftist libertarian, really. We had a lot of Democrats who joined when it first started. And there's no doubt that had uh, the George Floyd situation happened early in Oath Keepers, Oath Keepers would have absolutely been on the side of, of BLM in that situation, according to what they said they stood for initially. But you can see that that there was that Ron Paul movement early on, 2008, 2009, and he sort of shifted and molded and, and, and absorbed that energy from that crowd. And then you can see another shift during the Tea Party era. You can see Oath Keepers kind of shifting and molding and kind of absorbing that viewpoint. And then the Trump train showed up to the station and <laughs> he, he shifted and molded again. And just to kind of fit that, that group, there was energy there, there's money there. And he wanted to be a part of it. Well, let's talk. Let, so, yeah, this this kind of shape shifting that's going on uh, to, to see which way the way the wind is blowing and which way will get him the most followers and adherence. And you, you mentioned money. What what was his source of income? Just just Oath Keepers. Yeah. yeah. Oath Keepers paying their membership mm -hmm. dues. Membership dues, donations. So a lot of people would just send donations. Just mm. yeah, I have no idea how much money they really brought in. I know at one point there was 40,000 dues paying members. Yeah. I saw that while the IT guy was going over the, the membership list. And, and I knew that there was an error that wasn't calculating people who had re-upped a membership and it said 37,000 <laughs> mm. <laughs> kind of blew me away. Um, do, you, do you have any idea what membership dues were like? Um, I do. They were on the website. It started out as $20 for a year. I think yeah. eventually it was 50 and they had, um, they did have lifetime memberships. I believe at the end they were, well, not the end for, for Oath Keepers, but the end for my involvement, yeah, you know, sure. for me ever being around it. I believe it was $1,000 to have a lifetime mm, membership. Yeah. But and, if you, I mean, just of rough numbers, if you got say 40,000 people and they're say they're paying 50 bucks mm -hmm. uh, average, uh, that's $2 million. It's um, a lot of money. It's a lot of money. And yeah. did you, did you see where the heck that money went? Was it, no. where, where, where was it going? I mean, in, you know, just to our lifestyle at the time, we were living in a 900, 800, 900 square foot cabin with six kids mm. in the middle of the woods, mm. 1999 Suburban with 250,000 miles on it that never ran. Mm. And that's how the kids and I lived. I don't know how he lived when he left the house, except that I remember multiple times him rerouting flights to get to a destination. I remember one time him saying he wanted to go through Colorado because there was this place that had these hundred dollar steaks at the airport in Colorado. And he wanted to yeah. stop there and eat at that restaurant on the layover. And so I remember that. And um, I think he just traveled a lot. And weapons, what would he, oh, would he, yeah. buy, would he buy weapons, gear, or equipment? Yes, yes, yes and yes. Yeah. Piles and piles and piles of that stuff. Let's take time out for our newest sponsor, Credit Karma. During my government career with a security clearance, I had to ensure that my personal finances were pristine. That meant avoiding debt or paying down debt as fast as possible. But paying down debt can be stressful, especially when you need to keep track of multiple monthly payment dates. 
If you're tired of juggling due dates, consolidating with a personal loan could be your answer. That way you'll have just one due date a month and Credit Karma can help you find the best option for you. Credit Karma uses your credit data to find loan offers that are personalized to you so you can have a better idea of what loan amount you can get approved for. Credit Karma will even show you your chances of approval so you can choose between loan offers that you're more likely to get approved for and apply with more confidence. Comparing loan offers on Credit Karma is 100% free, won't affect your credit scores, and could save you money. Credit Karma. Apply with more confidence today. If you're ready to apply, head to creditkarma.com slash loan offers to see personalized offers. Go to creditkarma.com slash loan offers to find the loan for you. That's creditkarma.com slash loan offers. Let me share a word about our cybersecurity sponsor, Avast. I'm all about security, and today security is all about online security. Avast is a global leader in cybersecurity for more than 30 years and trusted by over 435 million users. Avast empowers you with digital safety and privacy no matter who you are, where you are, or how you connect. You can enjoy the opportunities that come with being connected on your terms. Avast's new all-in-one solution, Avast One, helps you take control of your safety and privacy online through a range of features. And you can learn more about Avast One at avast.com. Avast has data breach monitoring that enables you to find out if your online accounts have been compromised and whether your passwords need to be changed. It also has SmartScan that finds and removes viruses and resolves the most common privacy and performance issues through an optimization scan. I choose Avast for my online security because it prevents over 1.5 billion attacks every month. And with Avast One, you can confidently take control of your online world without worrying about viruses, phishing attacks, ransomware, hacking attempts, and other cyber crimes. Learn more about Avast One at Avast.com. Now, let's return to our guest. So, give us, so take, take us inside, if you will, your home, your home life. Here's this this man who's held up as a kind of moral leader by many thinks he's a great man. Tell us how he treated you and treated the kids. Well, there's a lot of shifting and molding there too, because he definitely tried to maintain the veneer. But once he moved us out into the, to the woods, basically that was about 2012 that just fell away. And we were, we were pretty isolated. And, and a lot of times we didn't even have a car and some of the, some of where that money went was him making sure we didn't have a running car and he would do just the, the, the spending he would do. I mean, he would just take this old beat up truck and take it to the car shop and drop it off and have all these repairs done for parts that were hard to order. And so that car would be in the shop sometimes for four months, six months. So we were carless and that was, that was, and these car repairs are, you know, they were like $10,000 in car repairs in a truck that's worth $1,500. So that kind of ridiculous spending would happen. Um, but that was to isolate us. And so he would leave town and here we are in the middle of the woods and there's food storage and, you know, he would go shopping, but that runs out, but that was with the good times because he's gone, you know, um, mm -hmm. when he was home, the whole world, we were all just satellites around him all the time and had to be. We were expected to revolve around him, agree with him. You couldn't get caught not laughing at his jokes or, or laughing enough. And you know his jokes were crude and gross and they're in front of kids. And 
And if he even showed a slight, I, most of the time he would break down at me is because my facial expression wasn't cheery enough or he sensed some subtle disapproval in my body language, but everything was around him. He had to have, you know, three meals a day, home cooked from scratch. And the kids had to just talk about, oh, hey, I mean, we couldn't do homeschooling. We had to just sort of feel his moods and what does he want to, us to do now today? What will make him happy? And and what would his wrath look like? I've seen public, again, if you're comfortable speaking uh, to some of the public allegations that have surfaced regarding physical abuse, uh, a gun, gun display, gun threatening with a gun. Is that something you're able yeah. to speak about? Yeah, and that was actually pretty common. Um, common that course, he would he yeah. would threaten with a gun. Yeah, um, he would start out getting upset and to do these yelling sessions, which I would sort of try to direct toward me subtly. But if I got caught doing that, then he would lash out even more at the kids. So I have to really be really subtle in how I kind of brought it toward me and try to bring him upstairs toward the bedroom. So he's away from the kids. And, and that didn't always work, but he would just go into these horrible screaming tirades. And just, he had this whole, this whole cadence of names for me and, and it would go on a, usually about three hours. And at that three, sometimes I would even look at the clock because I would know the three, here comes, now, now comes the moment. About three hours, he would either tone down and fade away and maybe go to sleep, or that's when it kicks up a notch. And now comes, now comes, look what he made me do. Here comes the guns, here comes throwing stuff, but waving guns around and it, that was pretty common, maybe toward the end there. It was every couple of weeks, you know, saying he was going to shoot the dog, stuff like that in front of the kids. That was mm. all the time, you know, oh. just drawing his handgun. And, and he would sort of not rack the slide because he did carry his, his handgun chambered, but he would kind of pull it back like he's checking it. But he lists like the sound because it's dramatic. He started to really spiral a lot. Basically, after Bunny Ranch, he really really took a mental downward spiral bad. And I don't really know if it was something that happened at Bundy Ranch in particular to cause that, or if it's just was another depressive cycle, but now we were completely isolated. Mm. And now he's the big boss, you know, Oath Keepers was getting more and more attention and he's seen more as a public figure. So I think, you know, he felt a little more in control. Right. So it, it got worse and worse. And at one point, he really was furious with my daughter. Um, we'd had a small argument about something, my daughter and I, she was 13. Um, and then she pointed something out with a lot of intelligence and maturity. And I, I said, you know, you're, you're right, I'm sorry. And that type of thing, I didn't realize he could hear. And that type of thing, me ever apologizing to the kids or the kids and I bonding or you know, the give and take that you have in a, in a real relationship and real emotions, you know, like I was wrong and I'm sorry and she's sorry and hug and that kind of thing would make him just infuriated. So as soon as she walked outside, he just grabbed her by her throat and she was just covered in bruises. And um, we did not call the police for a lot of reasons. And, you know, the Oath sure. Keeper factor absolutely plays sure. into why 
And when we did finally go to the police, they told me to go home to my husband. My restraining order was denied later on by a judge. You know, so many. You know, we we hear so often of uh, the battered spouse uh, syndrome, the the inability to get out for so many reasons. And now you've got this compounded by the fact that your husband is leader of a group that's heavily armed and yeah. will and will back him and and, yeah. and go against anybody who threatens him. So. I can't even imagine, Tasha, but there does come a time where you say enough is enough. And, yeah. and what, what's the current status of your, uh, your att- attempts at divorce? <laughs> We're finally getting somewhere. I had a lawyer for a while. I mean, finding a lawyer was, I mean, that was hell. Finding a lawyer, nobody wanted to take this on. The way we were able to finally get out was my kids grew up. I mean, some of my kids became adults. And my son was working as a, a wildland firefighter and my daughter was working and they were able to buy themselves cars and, you know, they had cell phones, <laughs> right. you know, things, right. you know, the, the kind of things that you need. But for me, even just trying to call an attorney, I mean, I couldn't call from the house for fear that they might accidentally call that number back. Um, and there's no cell service where we lived, of course. And so <laughs> I have to find a way to borrow a car or use one of the kids' cars eventually was what happened. Wait till he leaves town call them, hope they call me back before he comes back to town. And when they, as soon as they would Google him, that would be it. They had no interest. So I did finally find an attorney, but I just couldn't. As soon as she left town, the law firm dropped me immediately. And I owed something like $14,000. And there was still no child support. There was no resolution. There was no, he would just drag things out and contest and try to see the kids as much as possible. And that's kind of where we are now. I do have a lawyer now who's just stepped up and she's great. So that these attorneys he has now, I mean, everything we sent them, they sent back, they refused to accept it. Yeah, but now we know where he is. Yeah. So we've just two weeks ago sent him something else. So right. He's, he's, he's a little immobilized right now be, <laughs> behind bars. Yeah. And, uh, and somebody at some point has got to accept service yeah. uh, for him. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And li- li- another thing that strikes me about your really compelling story is we keep hearing about Stuart Rhodes, Yale Law School graduate. And we think, Boy, we're dealing with a, a really brilliant person. But let, let me give us some background on where he came from, his academic abilities, and and a role you played in supporting his his dreams of uh, getting to a law degree. Um, well, you know, when I met him, he was 25 years old, recently out of the military from um, an accident in the military. He had never been to college. He read a lot. He did read a lot. And I, I could tell he did. Ha- he was intelligent. That's probably one of the things I liked about him. That he was intelligent and assertive, which I liked because I was always very shy. Which and those, so those are two things that sort of drew me to him. Yeah. So he, at one point, admitted to me he he wasn't sure what vowels were. You know, he <laughs> he had never really done math beyond basic math. His his mother moved them a lot. His grandparents were migrant farm workers. Um, he grew up in an entirely Hispanic household. Um, his father was not in the picture at all. And the grandparents were migrant farm workers. He would spend summers with them and they would move around a lot. He went to five different, six different high schools um, between Las Vegas, California, Arizona, I think Oklahoma at one point. They just moved around a lot. She'd been married something like six times. Um, so he was very intelligent, but he'd never been to school. And he had, you know, he has VA money. And I encouraged him to just start small. It was a community college. And I was a college student at the time. I was 18. And so I encouraged him to start taking classes and he did. And he started right at the bottom. He started just a basic, basic writing class. I'm going to say it's 
about where my seventh, eighth graders, you know, around there, that, that level, right. just, just start from the beginning. And there's no shame in that. I mean, right. not, you know, just work your way up. And that's what he did. And he took a basic math class and he slowly worked his way up and he started doing very well. He was able to make the switch to UNLV from community college. Um, and that's when he learned about the honors program. We would be able to graduate summa cum laude. And it, as that progressed, I could see that his, he had a, a, a pretty good work ethic for grand statements, large papers, a thesis, something where he would stand up and read it, something that he would defend to the other professors, you know, giving talks. He had a, he had a real talent for that. And he, he was willing to put in work for those things that would bring him a lot of attention and energy. But the mundane things, you know, the, the daily homework assignments or the preparing for quizzes or things like that were things that he just didn't really seem to be capable of. And so I helped him a lot with that. And then he found out in addition to his honors thesis in order to graduate summa cum laude, he would have to take two different honors classes, Spanish history and a French history class and um, write some, I think, reviews for an art class. And he just said he didn't have time for it. <laughs> and he just wasn't going to be able to do it. And he just sort of threw it at me. And so I did those classes for him. And it wasn't, oh, <laughs> so it really? wasn't, and it wasn't pre-med, it wasn't like I thought, oh, I'm going to do these classes for him. It wasn't like that. It was at the point where he graduated, I had a new baby. I wasn't working anymore. And he would throw the stuff at me at the last second under pressure. He would never give me time to think, should I be doing this? It would just be at the last second. And it was always preceded by, you know, he would give me this speech while well, we worked so hard to get to this point, you know, do you want a future or not? You know, do you want me to go on? Do you want me to graduate? Do you want to make something? Do you want to have a family, you know, you know, that can, you know, don't have to live at your mother's house anymore. <laughs> well, this paper's due when I leave here and in one hour and I don't have time to do it. And so <laughs> it would be under that pressure. And it was just again and again and again, where I started trying to check his schedule you know, to see if I could see what his assignments were. So at least have a heads up so I could either say, you need to get started on this. Um, at that time, we're still living with my mother. Once I got pregnant, we had to um, live with my mom because I really couldn't work anymore. So that type of thing. Wow. So yeah, part of look, part of that undergrad degree is, sounds like it's yours. I mean, part of, part of it, at least when it comes to French and Spanish history papers <laughs> at the honors level. So how, how, does, how does he get ultimately get into Yale Law School? You know, and he got in everywhere. It wasn't just Yale. He got into Harvard. He was waitlisted at Stanford. I think he got into... Um, you must have you must have gotten Everywhere. some good you must have gotten some good grades on those papers. <laughs> <laughs> I did get A's in both. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and and, uh, and also I think I think his kind of compelling story of coming from nothing, moving around the country. Yeah, he definitely you know, used that. <laughs> right. I mean yeah. that that to a to an Ivy League school that looks like a very interesting diverse background. They, it, he's gonna he's mm -hmm. gonna give them diversity mm -hmm. at least socioeconomically yep. in their po population. That was a huge um, part of it. And he was older. He was in his early thirties by that time. And a military veteran. A military veteran. And then you know he all had also worked as a professional um, artist, as a sculptor, and he produced some beautiful pieces. They were so beautiful. It actually was part of why I took me a little longer to understand that he was a sociopath. Because I thought, how could someone create that? Until I really looked at it and I realized all of his artwork is exact copies of something. He would always have a model and it would be perfect, but it would be an exact copy. And I realized that that was sort of something that was a huge part of him. 
mm. is copying and replicating other people's emotions, replicating right. other people's behaviors to the point where sometimes it was embarrassing. You know, he would he would dress if it was someone hanging around a lot, he would dress just like that person. He would find out where they bought their shoes and where they bought their jacket and just buy the exact same clothes. And he would do this over and over again. And so constantly copying things is something that he did. And he had a memory for that type of thing. And that helped him a lot too. He um, sent in copies of his sculptures. He definitely talked about his family's history of his grandparents' struggles. His mother didn't have, you know, had a dirt floor and no running water until she was 11 years old. And he used all of that right. for sure. It makes for a good entrance uh, application essay. That's yeah. for sure. So when, when do you see a change, if any, in him toward this whole focus on stopping th threats to Trump, a turn toward violent planning. What, is there a, a, a part, a, a, maybe even a date on the calendar when you go, this, this thing ha happened, this, this is where I saw a change in his mindset. A anything come to mind? Well, so we separated February 2018. Right, right, At that right, right. point, he still had a Twitter account. When I last spoke with him, the last thing he said about Trump was some comment about, you know, he's not going to be you know, he's not going to support Trump. Trump's a fascist. He's not going to be some brown shirt to Trump. Wow. That was the last thing I heard. And then before we separated, but when, in my mind, I'm separated because I already had the attorney. I already, I already had the plan in place. But that the fall before we got out, he starts going to these, uh, maybe late summer, those Berkeley rallies, you know, which was strange. And he excused that by saying, well, we're not, we're not just there to defend Trump. We're we're there to protect the crowds. Like we did at Ferguson, we're there to protect protest. We're there to protect everyone, to, to calm the violence, to, to be the cool head among the storm, you know, <laughs> you know <Right>. speaking you. <laughs> right. um, so that is, but I could already see at that point, oh, he's, he's, you know, Alex Jones was full Trump at that point. He and Alex had had a, yet another little spat like they often did and weren't speaking at the time, but it was really clear. He made up very quick with Alex Jones as soon as we separated. And I think he was probably living on his couch for a while. Wow. But um, I saw that. And then maybe it was the next year or so that he left Montana and stayed in Texas, I think somewhere in there. I'm not sure when he was back and forth a lot. I watched his Twitter account a lot. It seems like he learned how to use it at some point while, yeah. while we were separated. Yeah. Um, and he spat it off a lot on Twitter. And I think at one point he didn't know how to turn off his location. So I was able to, I was always watching it also because I mostly just wanted to know where he was because I needed to know if we needed to, to constantly be on edge, you know, which we were whenever he was in town or even, you know, a hundred miles away. Um, so we watched that a lot. And I think it was um, November, 2020, when he had made some comments on, on Twitter that sounded very strange. And he started talking about civil war he is a lawyer, I mean, a disbarred one, but he is a lawyer, and he's very cautious about legal lines and not crossing them. And um, he started saying some things that were, I thought, way beyond the way he normally talks. Um, right. You know, even if you look at his history, at, at one point, he was put on the no-fly list for some comments he made about, um, now I can't even remember, <laughs> uh, John McCain. <laughs> he, had, he had made some comment that John McCain should be hung by the neck until dead. Or, and people, else, you can't say that. But if you look closely at what he said, everything he said was 
just right on that fine line of legal. Yep. He should be found guilty by a jury of his peers for treason. And if found guilty, he yeah, should be. He knows, he, you know? knows right, <laughs> he knows right where that line is. Yeah. And and we're about to we're about to find out, Tasha, if <laughs> if uh, he screwed up on where that line is because he, he is <laughs> he is now facing charges, federal charges, extremely serious charges yeah. of seditious conspiracy. So yeah. I have to I have to ask you. You may know him better than anyone. Uh, do you think he's going to cooperate? My first thought is no. Um, you know, Bundy Ranch and Mallier, he watched those very closely, and some of those guys were acquitted. And he never really got over that, that the guys who pled out did time. And Ammon Bundy stood there in front of the Southwestern court and <laughs> did his thing and took over the courtroom. And the jury saw his side of it, I think. All, you know, of course, combined with the fact that there were a lot of informants in there and that doesn't look good to a jury. They don't, people don't like that. And there was a lot of other factors in that. Um, it also didn't necessarily affect the people in the area directly. You know, very few people really care what was going on right. <laughs> in the middle of the forest out there. Right. Um, but he, that was something he never really got over that, oh, well, if they fight it out. He also believes in himself a lot and his ability to sway a crowd and a jury. But then the other factor to maybe pleading out is, you know, the venue. Uh, I mean, I know he, he's not going to try to have a bench trial. <laughs> in, or a, right. and, yeah. and I don't think he thinks he can convince a DC jury or DC I think if he, yeah, I would still put him going to trial at hundred percent, even if he had a change of venue to Virginia, even, even there, I think he would, he would go for it for sure. And, and I still am inclined to say he's going to trial. Yeah. I, this is now yeah. I, I understand where you're coming from having yeah. dis, dis, listened to your description of his personality type. And it sounds like he'd love a shot at testifying and getting in front yeah. of that jury and letting, letting them hear his spiel and sell himself and his ideas. Right. Just for, just for the dopamine, you know, yeah. just because he lives for that, you know, he lives for, wow. you know, speaking to the crowds. He always saw himself as, Growing up to be Jerry Spence, you know, he always. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah. This, this is going to be very, very interesting. Yeah. Um, and I want to, you, your story is just uh, opened some eyes. I think uh, I, I, even if one Oath Keeper member listens to this and says, my God, this guy, this guy I believed in is just quite, quite a hoax and, mm -hmm. and quite a sham in his family life. And, and then we've done some good. So if people want to help, help you help the kids you're you're in the middle of this divorce it costs money does he does he owe you child support he does like how like how much well last time i calculated i mean we're well into five figures i think we're headed up to six <laughs> mm. so yeah so if people want to help is there a way for them to to do that um i do have a help me divorce stuart rose go fund me <laughs> go fund um, me for the divorce yep help me divorce the keeper leader stuart rhodes um it's on my, at the top of my blog, which is thatgirltasha.com. It's on my Twitter, which is also thatgirltasha, some form of that. Yes, right. <laughs> it's the, at thatgirltasha. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I mean, he's got, he's got perhaps seemingly endless amounts of money to pay divorce lawyers. Yeah, from he Oath Keepers to. funds, perhaps. Yeah. And, and you yeah. don't. So that, don't. that would be one thing. Yeah. And then I can't help but think in just this brief conversation that you've got quite the, the story to tell uh, that would that people would people would purchase for a book is that something in the works it is I'm I'm well I'm a slow writer but it's happening mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm mm -hmm. 
trying to write as fast. I mean, he just keeps adding chapters to it. So I yes. <laughs> do you do you have a working title that we could keep our eyes out for? Um, or not the yet? Oathkeeper Wife, and I have a free prologue chapter up on my blog. And wow. a couple of outtakes. <laughs> yeah, we'll have to. We'll You're definitely yeah. have to. Yeah, I'll, I'll, that's a book I'll buy. The Oathkeeper yeah. Wife. Um, listen, we wish you nothing but uh, safety, health, and peace for you and the kids, and and continued j- just continued safety uh, as you go about opening everyone's eyes as to what it's like inside a cult like leaders' home. Tasha Adams, thank you for joining us on this episode of The Bureau. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks. Thanks for joining the conversation with Tasha Adams. Let's see if her prediction that Stuart Rhodes will not cooperate in the January 6th investigation is correct. I hope she's wrong, but I fear she's right. Join us next time as we go behind and beyond The Bureau with Frank Figluzzi. The Bureau is written by Frank Fagluzzi and executive produced by Allison Gill with sound design and editing by Molly Hockey with podcast art design by Johanna Coxeter. Music for The Bureau is written and composed by Peter Rydberg. The Bureau is a proud member of MSW Media Network, a collection of independent creator-owned podcasts focused on news, politics, and justice. For more information, visit mswmedia.com. 